0: To a new episode of our MENA Research Center Tea Time Talks. I'm very happy today to talk with Ruud Koopmans, the Institute Director for Integration, Migration and Transformation from the Science Center in Berlin, a very well known sociologist and book author who was focusing and is focusing on migration, integration and asylum policy in Europe. This is the first part of our episode, focusing on the scientific work of ÖRÜD and also talking about the situation regarding asylum and uh, refugees here in Europe. So, let's jump into it. Thanks, Ruth Koopmans, for having me here at your institute at the Science Centre in Berlin. I already attended your institute's new lecture series yesterday, and I think talking about Islam, Western values, uh, refugees, asylum, integration, is still a very important topic to discuss, and the lectures you organised for this year's series will, I'm sure, spread a light on challenges, chances regarding the religion's role in Europe. But before we jump into the topics uh, we would like to discuss, many of our audience don't know your institute, so what is the WZB exactly and what is the focus of your institute?
1: Yeah, so the WZB the um, uh, Berlin Social Science Center, is, it's, its English uh, name, um, is um, an independent research institute. So it's not linked to a university, um, but it's financed by uh, the federal government of Germany and um, the um, uh, state of Berlin. So it's a co-financing. It's uh, comparable to uh, Max Planck Institutes, which, which some uh, people may be more familiar. Um, so we collaborate with universities, but we, we set our own research agenda, basically. And um, the research of the Rates at Bay is, uh, is um, organized into different research areas, and one of these research areas is the research area migration and diversity, and that is the area that I lead as research director. And we do research on migration and integration in in all its uh, facets um, including uh, also um, uh, forms of uh, extremism both against immigrants, uh, right-wing populism and extremism, but also
0: um, by immigrants, um, uh, Islamism. Is it basically focusing on scientific work or uh, may you also be able to consult government's politics on the topics you and your institute are working on?
1: grundlagenforschung, So that means problem-oriented basic research. So we do basic research. It's not uh, contract research. It's not that the government asks us, okay, we want an answer to this and this question. We set our own agenda, but uh, we don't consider ourselves to be an ivory tower uh, we want to also um, yeah, transport uh, our research findings uh, into society, so it means that we find it important to be also present in the media uh, and also to be uh, involved uh, in, in policy uh, advising. So, um, in my case, that means, for instance, that I try to put my uh, academic findings also into a format uh, that is accessible to larger audiences. So in 2020, I published a book on um, the crisis of the Islamic world, Das verfallene Haus des uh, Islam. And recently I published a book uh, on um, uh, refugee politics, looking at uh, development since 2015 until the uh, recent uh, Ukraine war. Uh, and um, especially looking at uh, the question how we can avoid uh, the problems uh, that we have had and are still having with refugee, refugee poli- uh, politics in the past and the present uh, and redesign the um, uh, uh, Lottery.
0: And what was personally, when looking back to your scientific biography, your main impetus as a sociologist to focus on topics like uh, integration and uh, migration. And then um, um, I um, applied for a job here at Waitsit Bay um, as a postdoc
1: and, and in the 1990s uh, f- uh, for a research project on uh, right-wing extremism. And of course, focusing on right-wing extremism, you also have to focus on uh, the main topic uh, that provides uh, a fertile ground for mobilization of right-wing extremists, and that is immigration. So that brought me to the immigration issue. Um, so it is actually via right-wing uh, extremism. I mean, I've been focusing on this topic since, uh, I would say, well, right-wing extremism since the 90s, but um, uh, migration, integration politics, yeah, at least for the last 20 years or so, mm. yeah.
0: Coming to to the topic like uh, integration, I mean the word integration is somehow not in science but in society sometimes discussed as a problematic uh, word to cover those topics. What do you think about it? Integration, is it more an assimilation attempt the majority society wants to demand? How do, do you define in your work? uh the word integration
1: um yeah maybe first a, a, a remark in advance about sort of this being um, a contested uh word so we live in a world in which uh, more or less every word uh, is contested um, That's true. <laughs> no i mean it's uh, i think it's a troublesome development that uh, nowadays we talk more about words than actually yeah. about content there is a oh. lot of thin air, there's a lot of waste of energy in the public debate uh, about words and labels. So let's just go back to what it actually means. Integration, if you look at the academic definitions and also at the policy definitions, also in policy, it basically means that we strive to reduce the differences between immigrants, newcomers, whatever you want to call them. and. Those who are already there, the natives, the autochtones, or whatever you want to call them again, this is just labels, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's all about okay, you know, integration is a success when it doesn't matter for your educational success, for your labor market success, or for your risk to become involved in extremism or crime, also in the negative sense, whether you have a migration background or not, and or whether you're of a particular whether your parents came from a particular country. To the extent that that is not the case, and it actually matters, and especially if it matters in ways uh, that that um, for, for which there's no substantive reason. Of course, it's not a problem if people, you know, if Italians prefer spaghetti and Russians prefer borscht. Uh, That's not uh, the kind, so assimilation in that extreme sense. There's no need for that. But in this, and and then it doesn't. But in the sense of in in the core uh, institutions of society, that you know your your background doesn't matter. That should actually be a consensus, and it is actually a consensus if we look at what is behind words. But There's all this debate about whether we should... uh, Assimilation is something I I once, a couple of years, I published a book, Assimilation oder Multiculturalismus, which used assimilation in the way in which is very common in the academic literature and also actually in society
0: and politics in the United States, for instance. And it means exactly the same thing as integration. When we're just talking about this this attitude by, by some politicians, part of the society nowadays that they start to focus only on semantics and not focusing on the problem and how the problem can be solved do you see a shift especially in this discussion within the last years that the problematic focus on on semantics and not discussing and trying to solve the problems is in fact the main problem
1: Yeah, I think it is a major problem because it stands in the way of finding uh, solutions for uh, real problems. And one also has to ask the question, of course, where where does it come from, this focus on semantics? It has has something to do with the fact that um, the political left has become captured by uh, uh, an intellectual, highly educated middle class you know the political left is no longer a a working class or a poor people's uh, movement it is at least if you look at the higher echelons at the membership and of the active uh, party members it's become extremely upper middle class and also within the middle class a very particular section it's those who are uh, working in in jobs in in the social and humanities field and you know what is the main resource uh, of uh, bildungsbürgertum. it is words and that is why there is such a focus on words and on identities not uh, you know the, the the material has completely disappeared out of view or it has is of secondary importance. so that's why we have all this identity politics because it is it, it's it shifts the battlefield from material issues to those issues in which um, um, the professional, uh, new middle class, the highly educated, can claim competence. That's where they have a competence. That's where they can have the upper ground in these debates. And I think that's that's highly problematic, because it has estranged the political left. Uh, from the working class it has left mobilization uh, and the working class and also the the non high uh, basically not just the working class basically from everyone who is not highly educated and and or not working within uh, this social slash humanities field, not working in a, in a state job, basically, in a public service job. Yeah. Um, so it has contributed to a large extent to the polarization that we see in society and, and of the drift uh, of uh, a large part of the sort of lower and middle classes towards uh, the right and, and sometimes even uh, the extreme and populist right.
0: You just mentioned the so-called identity policy. How can an institute and a scientist who is also discussed in the public like you, um, professor at the Humboldt University, and you also got many critical feedbacks after the release of your books and your clear words on migration, integration, and the asylum crisis. How can you... With a with a scientific attitude, try right? to challenge those non-scientific and uh, just more or less semantic attacks.
1: Um, yeah, I, mean, I think it is the the only way is to keep uh, emphasizing um, reality and um, and and facts, um, and also to keep reminding people of what is actually at stake. So if I As an example, you know, refugee politics, the topic of my uh, my most recent book, is a highly emotional and highly normatively laden uh, political field. And because of this, every discussion about refugee politics ends up in a fight between uh, the conservative right and uh, the progressive uh, left. Whether these labels are correct, uh, (laughs) that's something else. But uh, without, you know any progress towards a solution. We have been in a stalemate in refugee politics for, for the last 25 years or so, on the European level uh, as well as on uh, the national level. So what I try to do in the book is to go back to what was refugee politics actually initially um, um, established for and what is its aim actually. Well, its aim is actually to help the largest, you know, with the, with the capacities that we have, to help the largest number of people that we can um, that are actually in need of protection and, of, and at the same time to do so with the least possible negative consequences for the receiving society. These are two things. They are separate. And you, know, you have to find the right balance between the two. And if you sort of go back to basics there and just you know, forget about all these, these normative and, uh, and, and political uh, debates for a while, but go back to the essence, then you can actually, you know, get back to the drawing board and see, OK, how can we do this differently? And, you know, I don't want to get into the details of my proposal there in the book. And in my book on, uh, on Islam, it's, it's a bit the same, you know. Uh, many of these debates around Islam and the integration of Muslims, they, they lead nowhere because any argument that is critical becomes brandished as uh, as islamophobic whereas on the other side of of, of the argument uh islam is rejected uh, outright and so there's no debate from that position either but you know my my approach is oh, if if we really care and i do you know if we really care about um, uh, um minorities and also the 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 fate of uh, muslim societies uh, around the world then we have to actually look at uh, the problems that exist in these countries with an open eye uh, and not you know look the other way uh, and then of course you have to then um, um, you know be frank about the diagnosis of uh, these problems and find a middle ground between, on the one hand, the the complete rejection of Islam and saying, you know, Islam is the root of all evil. It's non-reformable, which is a completely, you know, a dead-end position, doesn't lead nowhere. But on the other hand, uh, the apologetic position uh, that doesn't want to hear anything negative, uh, because you cannot say anything negative about the minority. Although, of course, you know, Muslims in (laughs) Muslim-majority countries are actually not the majority. Happen to be a a minority here, but worldwide, of course, and also if we look in terms of discrimination and persecution, um, uh, Muslims are not the most persecuted religious minority in the world. To the contrary, they are Muslim majority countries, are the countries that do the most religious persecution, including religious persecution of Muslim minorities, by the way, within you know, if Shia minorities in Sunni countries and the other way around to Ahmadiyya, etc. So. So if you really care, if you really care uh, about uh, religious diversity, if you really care about, you know, progress in the Muslim world, then you have to, uh, there's no way to really care without looking at the facts. Denying facts is not really caring.
0: You uh, wrote, uh, without trying to make a short summary of your recent book, uh, which, which I didn't read so far, um, the migration crisis of 2015-2016 was probably one of the most important mistakes former German Chancellor Merkel did.
1: Yeah, although there's there's tough competition there. I have to say, <laughs> I don't know whether it's energy politics or uh, politics with regard to Russia or refugee politics. So that's a, that's a tough contest, but but it's certainly one of one of the bigger mistakes. Yeah, one of many mistakes.
0: So you, not not in your recent book, but in the uh, one discussing uh, Islam. Your arguments and discussions you made were really fact based. You used a lot of statistics, surveys, etc. I think that was also the case in your uh, newest uh, book release. So, with what data could you underline the fact that the European policy uh, and the reaction regarding the migration crisis, not only by Merkel, but uh, by all? European uh, politicians. Um, what was the mistake here, the main mistake? Yeah, I
1: did I did not have to, uh, like in the other book actually, what I, you know, it, it, most of it was not original data, it's data that are there, so it's more like bringing together uh, facts that are actually known. Uh, so, to begin with, uh, we have a very basic problem in the European asylum system. We only give access to protection for people who make it to a European border. And because of the geographical location of uh, Europe, that means uh, very often uh, a sea border, the Mediterranean especially, partly also the Atlantic to the Canary Islands. Um, And that is very dangerous, and that's well known. In the last 10 years or so, 25,000 people died uh, uh, trying to reach uh, Europe. and, And the European migration system, so the migration towards Europe, is alone responsible for 70% of all deaths worldwide that occur um, uh, along migration routes. So that includes the migration to the United States via Mexico, migration in Southeast Asia, uh, in, within Africa, etc. 70% of deaths on on migration routes occur on the way to Europe, and almost all of these people who move towards Europe do so in order to claim asylum. So we have an asylum system that has been designed, that's going back to the basics, to actually help people, but that actually kills people, and it kills people on a pretty massive scale. So, I, you know, I do the calculation in, in my book. If you look at the number of people who try to cross the Mediterranean, and those who die uh, in trying, then we arrive at about uh, one and a half to two percent of those who try die. If you look at the death rates in Syria during the civil war, they are of a similar magnitude. So, claiming asylum in Europe is as dangerous as actually staying in a civil war-torn country. I mean, that is completely outrageous, It's, it's a moral scandal. So that's, that's the starting point. Um, I name many uh, uh, different uh, uh, negative uh, aspects of the current asylum system, but this is certainly the most uh, important one. But there are more. If you then look at those who actually do make it uh, to the European border, then we see that about Europe-wide, about 45% are actually not recognized as refugee. They don't have a right, actually, to protection, but at the same time, we are not able to send most of these. Almost all of them can stay. So it actually means that's what also makes it so attractive for people to go through the Sahara and risk death on the Mediterranean because they know, and of course people aren't stupid, we do research in West Africa, it's well known over there, once you make it to Europe you can stay, regardless of whether you come from a safe country and you are not politically persecuted, there's no war in your country, you know that when I make it. They all know. It's not that people don't know that they They actually overestimate the risk. Uh, even They think that the risk is even greater than it is. But they still uh, um, make themselves on their way towards Europe because they know, once I'm there, I can stay. And that's, that's like a sort of a, a carrot that we're holding uh, to, to poorer parts of the world that, that basically leads many people into debt. And as I say, 45% of people who actually come, are not actually those who need protection. And if you look at the other 55 percent, uh, for instance, those that come from Syria, Iraq, etc., that that mostly are recognized as refugees, a very large majority of them are young men. Where are the families with children? Where are the old people? Where are the sick people? And if you would look at the socioeconomic status, you would also find that these are often meant not from the most poor and most um, needy families, but actually from families that are able to pay uh, the thousands of euros that are necessary to pay smugglers to get into Europe I name a few examples in, in in my book of you know people who are relatively well off uh, in their countries of origin. They are able to uh, to uh, to finance the journey, so we are not helping. Uh, uh, even the ones that we are helping are not the most the, the most needy Syrians. And then there are some countries in the world uh, where there are terrible refugee crises, but that are geographically so distant from Europe, or that there are barriers. That make it almost impossible for people from these countries to actually reach Europe. Yemen is an example. Myanmar, Congo, etc. We don't help these people at all. So, from from the pers- seen from the perspective of its own aims, the reason why we established a refugee law after the Second World War, this system is a complete failure. And then it produces also. Uh, all kinds of negative consequences for the receiving societies. Crime rates, I analyzed, they are very high uh, among uh, refugees, which doesn't mean that all refugees are criminal or even most, but the crime rate is much, much higher than among the rest of the population, especially if we look at violent crime uh, and and sexual uh, offenses like rape. Uh, And this claims uh, also a, a, a considerable number of victims. So one of the uh, um, figures that I mention in my book is that in Germany between 2017 and 2020, more than 3,000 women were raped by refugee perpetrators. Refugee in the sense, people who claim asylum and not necessarily recognized, because if you look at those cases more in detail, there's a high over-representation of those asylum seekers who actually are not recognized or are still waiting for the decision or are in in appeal, etc., And often uh, have a a so-called duldung status. They have been rejected, but we cannot send them back for a variety of reasons So there too uh, there are negative consequences and integration also um, um, Doesn't uh, go very smoothly if you look at labor market integration at the beginning of the refugee crisis Angela Merkel and also uh, many representatives of employers' organizations were all very enthusiastic about this going to be, the refugees were going to solve the demographic problems of Germany and the shortages on the uh, labor market in terms of skilled labor, and of course nothing of the kind has happened. No, 70 percent of uh, asylum claimants uh, from uh, that cohort are still dependent on um, uh, state social welfare payments. So, you know, it's not that we have have to gain from uh, humanitarian migration. It's not the aim, but that it was sold as such by, uh, to us, especially by employers, was, of course, interest politics. And that is, happens a lot in the migration field. That's an aside. But there, if you look at uh, how migration research is financed, there has been an enormous outpouring in the last decade or so of institutes and research projects financed by all kinds of foundations linked uh, to um, uh, firms and employers' organizations. And why? Of course employers have, a, have an interest in migration, because in the case of the refugees, okay, 70% are dependent on uh, state uh, uh, support, but the 30% that isn't, of course, they take they 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 are they are they gladly take those uh, asylum seekers that they can employ. That also pressure put, puts pressure on the wages, etc. Uh, and that they know at the same time the costs of those who cannot be integrated in the labour market. We don't have to carry that. That's the state. The taxpayer is going to carry that. And it's exactly the same story as in the in the guest worker era. Employers were always lobbying for more guest workers, more guest workers, and they should stay, they could should get permanent contract, there should not be a rotation anymore, because that was obviously in their economic interest. And what happened when uh, the, the, there was structural change in the economy, competition from uh, Eastern Asia, etc., and the, and the jobs uh, in which guest workers were working were disappearing yeah then they fired them and then who had to pay uh, for uh, the empl- uh, unemployment benefits of course the state uh, and uh, society at large so you know one always have to be has to be very careful when uh, employers uh, start to advocate uh, immigration because it's it's interest politics and it's it's often not seen uh, and that's also one of the thing one thinks one can blame uh, angela merkel for um, she has been well, either she knew it and she willingly <laughs> took the side of employers, but probably she was just naive and thought, you know, believed that this story was actually true, and it's of course not true. So, so we have to rebuild this system basically from from the ground on, uh, and um, uh, we should do so. That, that I think that is very important, and it's, it's a line that I don't want to cross. Uh, International refugee law is something that is worthy uh, to keep and protect. It's a very important humanitarian principle that we help people in need, that people have a right uh, to claim uh, asylum. But we can do it much more uh, efficiently and humane if we say we take up people directly uh, in form of contingents together with uh, the um, Refugee Organization of the United Nations, the UNHCR, uh, we take them up directly from the uh, crisis countries, the war countries, the persecuting countries. So then we can say, okay, then we also help people. For instance, in Yemen, uh, it's the worst civil war uh, that is raging in the world today. Terrible with hunger and, 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 and whatever. Uh, and we take up people directly from Yemen so that they don't have to cross uh, the Sahara anymore, which they anyway cannot do because there's no way out from Yemen. But for other countries that would be the case so that um, we help these people directly but then of course the other side of the coin is also that we then have to say if we do that and we do this on a on a big scale and so my my proposal is not to take less refugees but at least the same amount as we're taking right now but to do it differently so take up these contingents and then say to people who arrive individually because they don't want to wait for a place in a contingent to say okay you still have the right to asylum, of course, according to international refugee law. But international refugee law doesn't say that you have the right to claim asylum in whichever country you choose. You you say you're in need of protection. OK, you have a right to have that claim um, 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 investigated. And if uh, the answer is yes, you are in need of protection, then you get protection, but you don't get to choose where. So we can make, on that principle, we can make agreements with countries outside the European Union, because we do our share already via contingents. Then we make agreements with countries outside the European Union. I mentioned a couple of possible examples, like Tunisia, Senegal, uh, Albania. Um, And uh, these these countries then process um, the asylum claims. If asylum seekers are recognized, they can also stay and get protection in these countries. Of course, Europe will have to um, um, give these countries compensation financially and also make it attractive for the population of these countries by offering um, possibilities for legal labor migration to the citizens of these countries. Um, but then uh, you will quickly see, and there's there's uh, the experience of Australia, uh, who has done something uh, quite similar. You don't have to copy that one-to-one. Uh, there are absurd, certainly critical aspects there, but you can take it as a model. Um, and then you you will see that the number of people, especially those who have no chances of getting asylum, that makes them make themselves on the dangerous route to Europe, will reduce itself very quickly and very dramatically, and also the number of people who die in the Mediterranean and on on the road to the Sahara will very quickly and very dramatically drop. And then we will be in a situation where we help many more people who are really in need, uh, and at the same time prevent many of the negative consequences that we currently have, because then we, of course, Will not have a situation where we will mostly have young men uh, without uh, that are not embedded in a family structure, but we can take entire families, you know, integrated uh, social uh, units basically, and of course that's much better for uh, for integration. And we can make sure, if we take up these contingents, that we spread them more or less um, equally across time. Of course, we sometimes will have to respond to emergency situations, but we can prevent the situation that we have right now, where refugee flows sometimes dramatically peak within a couple of months and then d- dramatically fall again. And then we have several years with hardly any refugees. And then all of a sudden, boom, then it goes up again. Of course, there you cannot make policies on the basis of such dramatic fluctuations. You cannot then. It always leads to uh, situations where the capacities of uh, local communities, of civil society, uh, uh, to integrate the, these people will be temporarily then be completely overburdened. Uh, And then, of course, integration doesn't work, Um, asylum seekers have to wait much too long for the decision, and it leads to all kinds of negative side effects. That can be prevented if you have quota that are predictable. You know that, you know, on a yearly basis, say Germany takes 160,000 refugees from across the world, and we do that every year.
0: But should this, in consequence, mean that we would have a European refugee contract just uh with the so-called willing countries, because for example, countries like Poland, Hungary would never, in my view, agree to setting up contingents, uh, sending some refugees to Germany, X, Y, Z percent to go to Hungary, for example. This probably will not work. So in consequence, does it mean that we have only to work with EU countries that are willing to do so? And um, second point is you said that we should also uh, cooperate with countries outside the EU. You mentioned, for example, Tunisia. I mean, we have now a lot of experience with uh, Erdogan's uh, Turkey, where the system was basically established, the European system. Uh, don't, don't we then put our faith into the hands of authoritarian regimes like, like uh, the one of Erdogan, the um, political system in Tunisia is also in a crisis. The Muslim Brotherhood is becoming more and more powerful there. So could it be still uh, serve as a stable solution?
1: Um, well, let me start with your first question about um, um, distribution uh, across the European Union and whether uh, one should work with a coalition of the willing. Um, I think one should, uh, but again, there one should be uh, pragmatic. Also, let's look at the current situation. Let's anyway, most refugees end up in a relatively small number uh, of countries: uh, Germany, uh, Switzerland, Austria, the Netherlands. Uh, Sweden uh, and yeah, and, a, and a few maybe to France and uh, and um, United Kingdom etc. But you know northwestern Europe that's that's where uh, most of the refugees uh, go. That's where most of the refugees also want to go. We have you know an area of free movement within the European Union. So it is also an illusion uh, that we can actually send large numbers of refugees to uh, Poland where they don't want to go. And where they don't uh, want to stay, and where they will not stay in the end. You can force them for a while, maybe, uh, by saying, oh, you get only payments uh, if you stay in Poland." But you know, it's not a, it's not a sustainable situation. Moreover, um, we know from from research on uh, on on um, um, interethnic conflicts in the context of immigration that these are most likely uh, from both sides uh, to occur in situations where migration is a relatively new phenomenon, where the relative increase in migration is relatively large. That means if you send large numbers of asylum seekers to regions or to countries that have little prior experience with immigration, that is a recipe for disaster. It is a recipe for violence. It's a recipe for the rise of right-wing populism. It's also a recipe, my research shows, uh, for crime uh, among uh, uh, asylum seekers because they also don't find uh, an ethnic community in which they can be integrated there. So they are, you know, isolated and, and you know, there's no uh, structure in which they find uh, their place. Um, so it, it, it's something that's A, not gonna work because the refugees don't wanna stay there. B, it's gonna have all kinds of negative side effects. So why not forget about it? It's, it's an issue that was, <laughs> very much at the forefront of Angela Merkel's agenda and a lot of energy and time has been wasted on trying to chase that illusion that we can get the so-called fair distribution uh, across uh, the countries of the European Union. So let's forget about it for the moment. Let's just sit together with the countries where refugees actually go uh, and try to find a better solution. And I'm pretty sure that once we have that better solution and once Uh, People in countries such as Poland know that those who are actually coming are not just uh, a random uh, group of people, among which many don't have a a right uh, to refugee protection, in which young men with a high risk of uh, criminality are highly overrepresented, but where we actually have a situation where the people that we help are actually really people in need and they're, you know, they're. Fairly distributed they include families with children, etc. Then probably also the willingness of these countries to make a contribution Will increase but even then probably the refugees themselves don't want to go there. So, you know, it's we shouldn't chase windmills uh, here and and, 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 But just be pragmatic and try to you know look at the facts on the ground and try to find a better solution
0: What about the contracts with third countries.
1: yeah so that was your second question um i mean of course you mentioned uh, the the deal the deal between the european union and turkey uh, which of course shows that such um, um, uh, agreements can be highly uh, problematic in the way in which it was originally conceived um, The, Tur- the EU Turkey deal had some elements uh, that are similar to what I propose So it was actually uh, proposed at the time that the European Union would take up larger numbers of refugees from Turkey It never happened um, It was also the idea that Turkey would take back rejected asylum seekers from Europe that also never happened instead what happened and and uh, It's, of course, it was the unwritten part of the EU-Turkey Declaration, but the most effective part of it, it was just that Erdogan held back the refugees. Just as before he had openly tolerated a very visible smuggling industry on the turkish Aegean coast, especially in Izmir, you know, which was very visible you know the main uh, uh, center of the smuggler industry in Izmir was just next to a police uh, station and it was just tolerated and the police in in Turkey you have to know it's not local police it's directly on the interior ministry and they are uh, immediately at the spot if anybody says anything negative about Erdogan so it's not that they don't have the capacity but there was no willingness at the moment, that uh, it was politically um, uh, convenient uh, for Erdogan to co- cooperate, you know, the refugee flow stopped immediately, and the, and the original idea of the EU-Turkey deal never materialized. The second problematic aspect of that uh, deal was that the main uh, exchange, uh, the thing that uh, Turkey got in exchange next to uh, money was not um, uh, a legal migration for Turks uh, to the European Union, um, but uh, it was the promise uh, of reopening of the uh, negotiations about uh, EU membership uh, and vis-a-vis travel for, uh, for Turks to uh, the European Union. And both of these lacked any uh, material basis because Turkey neither fulfills the criteria for uh, vis-a-vis travel nor even less uh, the criteria for uh, becoming a member of the European Union um, so that of course one should not make political promises uh, to autocrats but one should but you can still make um, interest politics with autocrats because they are under pressure from their own population also and Labour market contingents, if we say to Tunisia, for instance, you get yearly the possibility for 50,000 Tunisians to get a uh, labour immigration uh, visa, then that is extremely attractive to Tunisians. It will be very difficult uh, to, for the Tunisian government to say, OK, we, we, we cancel this agreement because they will get into trouble with their own population. So, you know, smart interest politics uh, may help. And of course, that doesn't solve the problem of human rights violations uh, within Tunisia against uh, the Tunisian population. Um, but that is, of course, an exception that one would anyway build in su- into such uh, agreements. So. Tunisia would uh, become responsible for um, um, dealing with asylum requests by people who spontaneously arrive at the European Union border, but with the exception, of course, of Tunisians. We're not going to ask Tunisia to uh, judge as- asylum claims by Tunisians. So the right of, of Tunisians to claim asylum in the European Union would not be affected, or at least they would maybe be then processed in Senegal or something. So. I mean, we can of course long wait for a situation where we only make uh, agreements with countries that are uh, pure and perfect uh, democracies. Uh, That would be the ideal, but that is unfortunately not uh, the reality uh, of the world in which uh, Europe finds itself.
0: So that was the uh, first part of our TITAN talk with Urud Hokmans. The second part focusing on, uh, especially on, on Islam and its role in Europe and is it possible uh, to reform the uh, religion uh, from the inside? Uh, here in Europe um, but also globally Um, this will be a topic for our second part which will be broadcasted next week so thanks for your attendance and uh, hear you soon uh, next week bye bye